Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. Opera Box Score needs your donation to retain its title as America's talk radio show about opera. You can give on our website, operaboxscore.com slash donate. When you throw even 10 bucks our way, it helps us promote the show to more listeners. Just 20 bucks helps cover our website costs. Chip in 50 bucks and we can pay to wax Tobias's back. But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. Operaboxscore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, Let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's Talk radio show about opera, period. We are live on WNUR 89.3 FM and HD, Northwestern, Evanston, Chicago. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, with co-hosts Tobias Wright and Matt Cummings. All right, tonight we go inside the huddle with opera baritone and hip-hop producer and performer K.F. Jacques. He tells us about what it took to fuse two musical genres into something totally unique. Trust me, you do not want to miss the sound clips that we're going to play of his work. And then in Chalk Talk, we take a closer listen to Blue, the opera by Janine Tazari and Taswell Thompson premiering at the Glimmerglass Festival later this summer, plus Two Minute Drill, Problems at Michigan Opera Theater, Problems at La Scala, Problems at New York City Opera, and more. That list is long. And of course, you can call us on the air. Get your voice heard. 847-866-WNUR is our number in studio. Give us your opinion on what we're talking about tonight. 847-866-9687. You can also tweet us at Opera Box Score. You can post on our Facebook page. Got a great crew in here tonight. Tobias Wright would be one of those. I am here. And George, my sports take is not about the dog days of summer. It is that NBA free agency is what is happening now. And if you're a sports fan, you love NBA free agency. And even with Kevin Durant rupturing an Achilles, he is still the most powerful man in the world. After Zion. Okay. Of course. Matt Cummings. That's me. I'm here. Also there in Studio 2. It's true. The the Cubs and the Sox went head-to-head over the last couple days. The series is coming back uh, 10 days, I think, from now. Yeah, that sounds right to me. I mean, you're you're the expert, George. That's sort of George. We're going to a game. What are we going to see? Uh, we're going to Sox Tigers. Ah, I love the, the hometown, the hometown rumble. I love for clothing George. on a wild animal. <laughs> I have no idea what that meant. <laughs> huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. It's Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM. Shortly after completing his master's degree in opera performance, bass, baritone, Kari Laurent took to producing his own material and creating a brand new genre on the forefront of hip-hop and opera music under the pseudonym K.F. Jacques. From tours in exotic locations around the world to the Rosie O'Donnell show, he's captivated audiences worldwide with his exceptional fusion of rap, opera, and pop, dubbed Opera-tronic. He's performed multiple times as a headliner at the House of Blues in Chicago. He's performed his classic solo rendition of the National Anthem at the UC, The Cell, and Soldier Field. KF Shock, it's so great to have you on the show. Yo, yo, yo. <laughs> I want to be the first opera singer to say, yo, yo, yo. I think you've won that <laughs> yes. distinction. Yes. <laughs> Thank you, KF Shock. Oh, my goodness. I, okay, so full disclosure, I've, I've known Kari for... Oh, man, a couple years now, I guess, yeah. as, as you and I have been putting together the Rosina Project. Our listeners, of course, you know that I don't I don't hype my own stuff on this show too much. We will be listening to a little bit of the Rosina Project tonight. But I brought Gary on the show because there's really nobody like him. Go on, yes. <laughs> yeah. I, Stop it, Joe. Okay, so, so Please keep going. Let's, we'll, we'll start simple, though, because you went to Roosevelt. Yep. Right here in Chicago. And there Shall are other it. people like you that did go to Roosevelt. Other people went to Roosevelt. Presumably, uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Chicago College of Performing Arts. Yeah, thank house. you. Thank you. And you're from Hyde Park. I am from Hyde Park. Chi-town all the way through. But, and I was told you, I'm going to steal your first question here, which was, which, which came first? The desire to perform hip-hop music or the desire to sing classical music? 
the desire to sing classical music came first. Hmm. I so, was, uh, I was, I think I was into Michael Jackson, and from Michael Jackson, I went to opera, and from opera, I mean, I guess opera and hip hop were sort of things that I got into at the same time, really. And when you, so taking it off that, being a Michael Jackson fan, which I am also a huge Michael Jackson fan, also Word. a huge fan of yours, um, it's kind of interesting because how did classical music come first? I mean, obviously you were singing along. I doubt you were singing along to Pavarotti or, or whatever. You were singing along to Michael Jackson, but how did you discover that you had a classical sound and how did that lead you to CCPA? Because that's a great school for a classical voice degree. Indeed. Um when I was in about seventh grade, how long, how long do we have? Just kidding. No, we um, got a whole show. <laughs> Just tell our stories, man. Just go. I got plenty we're, of them. We're on your time. I got a whole bunch of stories. So when I was in seventh grade, my mother would listen to uh, 98.7. <clears throat> what? Uh, the WFMT. WFMT. Thank yeah. you. I couldn't remember what FMT was. So she would listen to the classical uh, music station, and they would announce these auditions for the Lyric Opera Children's Choir. And so I went to audition. And I got in. I had been singing in church and, and like at school competitions and stuff like that. So that was how I got my start. And I was uh, my first opera that I'd ever seen was the one that I was actually in. And that was in the children's chorus for um, Mephistopheles with Samuel wow. Rainey. Wow. At, at Lyric Opera. <laughs> you know, a really commonly done work. Absolutely. With a really poor singer. Who hasn't yeah. been in Memphis <laughs> right, right. with Sam Raimi? Right. Join the club car. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, um, it's hard not to get the bug when you're in that environment and all that buzz going around and all that, all that A-list talent around you. So uh, that's, that's how I got started in opera. So that gave you the bug, but then from there, did you start, you know, taking voice lessons, piano, instruments? Um, yeah, shortly thereafter. I was always doing, like, summer theater lab at lab school, and, and I would do um, some uh, theater courses and music courses. and Like, Merit Music, I did Merit, mm -hmm. Chicago Children's Chorus, Choir, Chicago Children's Choir. Oh, I worked with them last summer. That's that. That's a great group of people. Oh my goodness, <laughs> the talent is so ridiculous. Yeah. Um, also, um, I went to uh, Chicago Academy for the Arts, and also Lincoln Park High School. Two two very arts oriented schools. So mm -hmm. it w I was really lucky um, in my high school years just to be exposed to so much classical music. And w so, why did you win? Did you first start to mix classical singing and hip hop? And then, um, that was after undergrad. I uh, I took some years off between undergrad and grad school to uh, to try to do some professional contracts or like semi professional, like student. Like, what do they call it? Young artist programs. Young artist Thank programs. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Young artist programs. So. Um, while I was doing those things, you know, I was, I, it was this really strange moment because I started reconnecting with people from my elementary school, high school years. And these are people that I was like in music groups with and like quartets, like we were doing like boys to men and all this stuff. And I reconnected with these guys and they were like wholly into their craft. Like they were, they went, they were the other side of the curtain from where I, you know, like mm -hmm. from where I was. So I was I was seeing this and like just loving it, just loving their journey and and I had loved mine as well, but I honestly was getting a little bit burnt out. So I started exploring all these artistic, you know, uh, different outlets. Outlets. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I yeah. got you. Yeah. And like, what kind of reception did those get? Because um, it's a it's a pretty unique sound that you that that you've been able to create. Yeah, everyone thought it was a neat hobby, and it was. I mean, like I was, I, I had started learning Pro Tools back in like I don't know two thousand one something like that. You know, like I was using the free version of Pro Tools. I got my first Korg Triton. So like all this, <laughs> you know, all this electric electronic stuff started coming into my life. And I, I started traveling with it. Like I was, I was going to Italy to do these uh, different contracts, and I would take the, take the keyboard and the and the uh, laptop with me. And things ended up uh, just sort of snowballing. But when I first started, it was total crap. 
<laughs> as, as most artists would say, I'm sure, about their early work. Yep. It's up right. box score on WNUR 89.3 FM. We're talking to opera baritone and hip-hop producer and performer Kate Avjak. You say it was total crap when it first came out. We got to listen to some, man. <laughs> this is, but not the crap, because I don't think this I is... I don't have... Of, no, I would never give you that. No, of course <laughs> you wouldn't. But the, I don't have crap. Well, Come this, on. This, this track is, is called Ona. What do, what do we need to know? Ona means she in Polish. My wife is Polish. So she wrote the Polish uh, lyrics to the uh, Polish uh, text in this song. Um, what I sing here in Polish is all in operatic voice. And then the rest, and then I throw in a little, a little rap and I throw in some R&B vocals. And the beat is all by me. And that's also hip hop. <laughs> Blowing up your soundboard from here, hope broken. I'm choking, not too often. Haters pissed off it. They don't see the death of me congested in their coffin. Daily on my grind, I keep my head about my shoulders. Drop a rhyme a second, dropping gems the size of boulders. Jacques there on his track, Ona. Yes. Yes. My ears have never been happier on <laughs> Opera Box Score. And probably, if you, unless you're watching the video, you wouldn't believe that all of that is the same person. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm kind of curious to know, like, is any one piece of that, what, what piece of that do you think is the most challenging part of it? Like, of operatic singing, making beats, rapping, R&B vocals, like, what, what for you, what takes, does one of them take, like, m- more focused than any of the other kinds or is is harder to kind of tap into that artistic well the hardest thing to do in that process for me is making the beats um it's very tedious very time consuming uh especially when you're on a learning curve like i didn't take any audio engineering courses or anything Uh so everything i'm learning is you know from friends from youtube from intuition so you know, that's the hardest part is just taking the time to make sure everything sounds right, sounds, you know, what I would deem to sound professional. Yeah, that, sure. that changes every year. But um, and then like in a live setting, the opera is the hardest. <laughs> it's just like sustaining, like to be able to switch through. And I'm not trying to pat myself on the back because I actually do think it's difficult and I actually have trouble performing for long periods of time. But when uh, when it comes to switching back and forth from rap to R&B vocals to opera, and I'll do it live, and right. I, mm-hmm. I really, I'm a purist about it. Like I want it. That's funny, but I'm a purist about it because I want it to be live. I want people to see me go from singing R&B to singing opera to actually so we, rapping. Uh, we're all singers here, minus George, who is the 
creative, the, the creative genius of it all. And I actually, that was one of my questions for you. When you go, because I love singing in different styles as well, mm-hmm. but it's doing it simultaneously like that from one to the other. Like that's a gear shift that many people can't even, they, they, they don't even know exists, right? Right. So right. what is that like for you when you're going from a passage, like literally going from a passage from, let's say, first singing opera, then to singing pop mm-hmm. like in, in what is that switch like for you like do you actually think like here's how i have to adjust my like physically this is what my larynx has to do like you have yeah. a master's degree in voice so technically it's like um rossini uh recitative mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. it's just the pattern so fast that's how you get like your rap chops and then if you've ever done any of that recitative and done like um uh, and ornamentation or something like that in the middle of it, I don't know, or maybe early music is more like it because you can you can do those ornamentations, but it's 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 a lot like that transition, and especially I don't know if it's so much for the female voice, but for the male voice, there are all these different registers when it comes to that uh, um, uh, bridge between the falsetto yeah. and the, well, yeah, and the head voice. Well, uh, and your range is different. Mm-hmm. When you sing mm-hmm. operatically, you're a baritone. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. But when you're doing, yes. when you're singing as a, a hip hop artist or as singing in a in something that you know is more pop centric, your your range is quite different. Yes. I mean, you're up a fourth almost, like you're singing <laughs> as a tenor. Yeah. Absolutely. I definitely. I've had people ask me, so so you know they know a little something, right? So they're like, you know, the the church singers or the choir singers, and they're like, <laughs> yeah. so we, uh, we know who they are. Right. right. Yeah. So they're like, so as so I'm talking to them in my regular voice, and they're like, so uh, you sing tenor, right? And they're totally <laughs> smug about it, and I'm like, actually, no. But I know why you're <laughs> smug right now. Yeah. And it, it makes sense. Like, I'm not offended at all. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so you're absolutely right about that. Like, when I'm singing in R&B voice and also in rap, it's, uh, it's a different timbre than, than with, with my operatic voice. I love that. Where my chest is a drum. <laughs> <laughs> Got to use that resonance, you know? Uh, tell us about your love of polo disco. <laughs> <laughs> I will tell you about my love. First define of, it for us. <laughs> okay, all right. So it's the the genre is called disco polo. Ah, that was so wrong. close. See, I knew nothing. And if there are any Polish people listening, they're probably cringing right now because I always say I love I love disco polo. I love it. Um, and my wife complains. She says the only reason you love it is because you don't understand how simple the words are. <laughs> <laughs> and I go, fine. I love disco polo. <laughs> I have so. my feelings. <laughs> So um, I, I think that um, uh, my exposure to it has always been from a perspective of, like, parties and stuff like that. Now, people say they don't love it, and they uh, Polish people say they don't love disco polo, and they don't know it because it's not something you necessarily listen to in your car or you don't, you know, listen to it in around the house or whatever. It's something that plays at every wedding and... Um, every like you know celebration, every banquet and stuff like that, and people are just on the floor dancing, singing the words. Everyone's happy. The words are simple. It's just so, it's visceral. So it, it's like no. the cha cha slide. Absolutely <laughs> like the cha cha slide. Yes, yes. DJ yes. Casper. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the only difference with the cha cha slide is, um, I I don't think the cha cha slide has its own culture. Like I don't think those guys tour around the United States performing the cha-cha slide but in with disco polo those dudes make some real change and they go around i mean they they make some real pocket change and they go around (laughs) touring all of poland on those wedding songs basically so sounds like a pretty sweet gig maybe maybe we can uh Use our connections to get into break into the disco polo. We have a connection circuit. now. Yeah, now you do. <laughs> it's Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM. We've got KF Jacques on for the whole show tonight. We're going to step aside much more from him and the whole team to come. Plus, uh, the Opera Blue, which premieres at Glimmer Glass next month. We're going to tell you why that is a big deal. It's all next on America's Talk Radio Show about opera. WNUR 89.3 FM and HD. Northwestern, Evanston, Chicago. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. 
Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. So, we call ourselves America's talk radio show about opera. Why? Because we are. With an ever-growing base of fans subscribing to the OBS podcast and a stadium full of listeners tuning into our live broadcast, we are in the ear holes of the opera audience you want to reach. Want to promote your opera-related service or event? Or propose to the bear hunk in your life? Maybe you just want the sound of your name memorialized on air by our announcer, Norm Waddell. Anything's possible. Drop us a line at operaboxscore at gmail.com for rates and availability. You're listening to Opera Box Score with George Cedarquest, Tobias Wright, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Oliver the Man Camacho. Hey, everybody. It's Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM, America's talk radio show about opera. George Cedarquist here, along with Tobias Wright, Matt Cummings, and our guest in studio, old friend of mine, opera baritone, hip-hop producer and performer, K.F. Jacques. K.F. Jacques. (laughs) So, Guy, you and I have been working on this project. Uh, Originally, it was called the Rossini Project. Originally, yes. Originally, yes. And it was this idea that, that I had that... Uh, did I ever tell you this, actually, that originally I thought it should be an EDM version of The Barber of Seville by Rossini? Wow. No, you didn't. Yeah. Originally, I thought it should be an EDM show. And for some reason, I kind of moved away from that idea m- into thinking it needed to be much more focused on the culture of hip-hop, the music, the dance, uh, that's part of that genre. You and I were connected yeah. by a fellow director called James Marvell. James, the man. Who I mean, I I have him to thank for knowing you now, Kari. And you and I slowly and surely kind of put the team together for what is now known as the Rosina Project, which is a immersive hip opera with a. Uh, the audience on their feet watching this retelling of Rossini's opera, The Barber of Seville, told through original rap by authentic hip-hop MCs, a crew of street dancers, a beatboxer, a DJ, and kind of at the center of it all, two people, one uh, being the character of Rosina and two being yourself, the opera singer, rapper, Figaro. Yes. When I first came to you with the project, like... I mean, what did you think? Uh, when you first came to me with a project, I was... Um, you were thinking about a burrito, weren't you? I was thinking about a burrito, and shortly thereafter, I was thinking, this dude was sent from some deity <laughs> to the couch in my studio. It's a lovely studio, by the way. That's what we all think about, George. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> yeah, so uh, thank you. Uh, I take a lot of pride in that studio. I built it all myself, and it took many years of dreaming before I got to that point. But um, when you came and gave me that idea, like when you told me that, okay, I want to make a hip-hop opera, like this is like stuff that I was dreaming about, right? Mm-hmm. But I had no no wherewithal. I had no idea where to start something so big, and I knew I needed people to do it. But, you know, I, I was... When you came to me two years ago, I was at a point in my career when I was trying to figure out how I was going to get paid to do what I do anyway, right? Right. So I didn't know how I was going to bring people on to do some project that, you know, that I knew there was no short-term financial gain, right? But, wow, I'll be damned if that long-term doesn't become, you know. I I mean, it was overwhelming at the beginning, wasn't it? And I think we realized that what we needed was authenticity mm-hmm. and we had authenticity in you and mm-hmm. we had authenticity in the company of dancers known as brave soul movement. Sure. And between your connections to say our DJ and brave souls connections to other rappers, we got the team together, but still things had to be written. Absolutely. Let's, we're going to listen to your version of Largo al Factotum. Can I just preface a little bit? You must. So uh, when I was approaching uh, the music for Rosina Project, like I'm not saying that what we're doing has never been done before. Like everyone's doing hip hop opera. I mean, not everyone, but you know, there's a lot of people that are like, "Hey, let's try this," and it's like, "Well, that sounds like hip hop and opera." 
So there's so many different ways to interpret that idea. And my biggest uh, um, goal was to come up with beats that were super, like you said about authenticity, George, beats that are super authentic, like real hip-hop beats. Like I haven't heard that yet with, uh, with operatic themes. And like I'll give credit. Uh, to uh, there's one time that I may have, that they touched on it, which was that uh, production with Beyonce in the early 2000s mm-hmm. when well, they did Carmen, Carmen hip absolutely opera. yes, and you know there were some there were some real beats in there, but I don't think they caught fire. Like I wanted them to catch fire, you know. Yeah, I wanted yeah. this stuff to be mainstream, so uh, so that's my approach. And the first beat that I did was this Largo Alfactorum, which is my which I call Hey Figaro. Tell them where to go to make way for the shock of all trades. They come up to my shop, they come up with a fade. I can get you looking right any day, any night. For the right price, I can give you swag in a spotlight. Figaro, Figaro, bravo, bravissimo. They tell me I'm a beast, so I'ma turn this into beast mode. Most known and least hated, quite possibly the greatest. Quite certainly most famous, quite skilled with these razors. Everything is ready in my command. Nobody can stop me cause I'm running with these scissors in my hand Yo, hey, hey Figaro, you killing with them clippers, bro Hey, hey Figaro, I'm sending all my people, yo Hey, hey Figaro, bravo, bravissimo Figaro, hey Figaro, you killing with them clippers What a time to be a barber in the bill Everybody asking for a cut because they heard about my skills It's my testament and will to bless the whole Seville with my steel I'm giving cusses cold like the wind chill Plus perks of the train, you know I rock the finest Catch me in the castle, I'll be chilling with your highness Cause there's not a better barber, they gon' trust with these blades I even got you ladies if you want your edges laid What? Hey, hey Figaro, you killing with the clippers bro Hey, hey Figaro with the clippers, bro. Hey, hey, Figaro. Bravo, bravissimo. Figaro, hey, Figaro. You kill it with them clippers. You kill it with them clippers. You kill it with them clippers. Yell me at me. Say my name. Say it loud. Let's run the game. Hey, Figaro. Hey, Figaro. Hey, Figaro. Jack doing Largo Alfactotum, his adaptation of the famous opera from Rossini's The Barber of Seville. Yes, yes, yes. Part of the Rosina Project. (laughs) Thank you. What I love about that is that it's still like totally recognizable as what aria it is, but it is it but it it's not like you're not creating your own Mm. individual art. Have you done the role before? Not uh, Figaro. No. No, I've done uh, Barbara Seville many times, but not Figaro. Okay, okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I mean, because I, go ahead, George. Well, I was going to say, you've sung Bartolo. 
<laughs> is it Basilio? That's the the that's well. Basilio nothing. sings La Colonia. Yeah, I did Basilio. Okay, yeah. I did Basilio. the music teacher. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's kind of cool. I mean, so you'd done the show before, so you were familiar with it. I was just kind of curious, like writing writing rap lyrics for a character that you know doesn't have rap lyrics essentially but yeah. I'm, i was kind of curious about that process like what did you how how long did you dive into the libretto and like how familiar did you become with the whole story so originally uh there did was george another... tell you did george ghostwrite that <laughs> 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 originally there was another guy playing figaro because um i we there was an incubator an arts incubator that we did the rossini it was rossini project at the time so there have been a lot of changes in the in the a lot of iterations in the past two years but the first year, uh, I only came on to do the track. So the actual rap was written by someone else who had taken it from the libretto. Mm-hmm. And at that point... Gotcha, gotcha. Uh, so then this year, we did the full version, and that's when I came on. That's why, when George twisted my arm and made me do Figaro. Right, because last year during the incubator, you were on a tour. This that's year, you true. were available. That's true. But I mean, clearly, I mean, what we've been able to capture now, right, is mm-hmm. is the one man band that Kari that you are. With. Go on, go on. <laughs> you're, dude, you're not gonna be able to fit out of the studio <laughs> when we're done. Your head's gonna be so big. Uh, with opera singing, rapping, uh, even writing the track itself, and mm-hmm. I forget how much of the show you've written as well. I I mean I'm really I've never done anything this this big George yeah, I yeah. mean like I I am so grateful that you presented me with this that I was like the one that you presented with this opportunity originally um, and I'm grateful that we could have the longevity that we do because a lot of time I mean you know this isn't the first time you or I has had a big idea sure and then had other people involved and then the thing doesn't come to fruition for a million different reasons so. I'm I'm lucky to be where we are. I feel lucky to be where we are, and I feel like uh, uh, that's why I was able to uh, come up with something that's so um, so big, so cohesive, and and so um, complete is what I'm trying to say. So, on the show a couple weeks ago, it's Opera Box where, by the way, WNUR eighty nine point three FM. We talked about. Three operas that are being premiered this summer, which are written by creative teams of black artists, which have black characters. And those operas were Fire, Shut Up in My Bones, uh, based on the novel composed by Terrence Blanchard. That was at Opera Theater of St. Louis. The opera about the Central Park Five, which has nothing to do with the Netflix series. I got very confused by that, gentlemen. I thought they were related, and, and they're not. The third piece that we didn't talk about as much those weeks ago on the show was this piece, Blue, which is at the Glimmerglass Festival, actually opening on July 14. The music is by Janine Tesori with the libretto by Taswell Thompson being directed by Taswell Thompson as well. It centers on the hopes and fears of a young couple as they raise a son in 21st century America. In the story set in Harlem, the father is a police officer and the mother are supported by a loving community of fellow law enforcement, churchgoers, and friends as they navigate a devastating reality. Jean, uh, Janine Tesori, of course, known from opera work as well as commercial blockbusters like Shrek the Musical and Fun Home, Caroline or Change, Taswell Thompson, an Emmy-nominated director, playwright, and author. What I'm interested in, Kari, is is your take on this. And so we have this synthesis of these three operas this summer created by, by black artists. I mean, what do you see as... as un, is there anything unusual about that? Uh what's what's your take on that how uh, does this surprise you is it about damn time what what's your take um so i think uh i think it's about damn time yes uh it doesn't surprise me because of um the hyper sort of uh polarized culture that we live in i feel like there are people that are on there are people that are just on extreme sides right now so I think it it has all to do with uh, um, the opportunity for it's an opportunity for minorities for all minorities to come up with something and and actually present it because 
you know, I, I think that it's it's important for those stories to be told. So, um, in all honesty, I don't know about these uh, these productions that are being put on because I've been kind of out of the opera world. But I'm really impressed with the. I, I feel like every year there's like two or three that like pop up that are like, okay, I got, I see my people out here doing something, right? Like, well, and that's one of the things that we talk about yeah. on the show quite a bit. Uh-huh. And actually, we have a scale that we use to rate diversity in opera companies. Oh, wow. And one that of the things, insane. one of Matt's uh, points about this that we talked about earlier is that what's great about this particular show is that neither creator of it is a white man. Yes. Because mm. the the powers that be are all white men, all of who seem to be receiving the accusations of sexual assault. Wow. Those are powerful white men. So it's like when you look at diversity um, happening, that's, that's things that we want to champion in the arts world, period. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Female, straight, transgender, um, black, Hispanic. I mean, anytime that you see that, especially a full creative team, mm-hmm. um, that's something that we get excited about Indeed. in the opera industry. I don't Indeed. know if Matt, you want to tail off that at all. Yeah, I also think what's cool about this piece is that it like it feels current and it is resonant with what's going on in our culture, but it's not straight just ripped from the headlines. Like, oh, obviously they're just trying to tell this story or that story, like without being any one specific story it can kind of express empathy for the whole right crisis it, that's going around right now absolutely yeah, yeah it makes it applicable in every neighborhood it's that this is you know happening in that's exactly right it's not ripped from the headlines i mean look taswell thompson he's smarter than that mm. he is more intelligent to to create an original work terence blanchard adapting fire shut up in my bones is adapting this novel right it's not just taken from the headlines. Central Park Five, yes, I mean, that is a historical narrative, but from decades ago mm-hmm. now. Uh, Matt, you, you also, in the pre-show meeting that we had, made this interesting point about that this is a chamber piece that's for non-white singers and that that's something that's really lacking from the opera repertoire in the 21st century. Yeah, for sure. Like, if you're talking about 20th century opera, you have Porky and Bess as a great example of a and an, an entirely non-white cast, but it's a huge show, mm-hmm. which means that only like really big companies can do it, or mm-hmm. like sometimes Hungary tries to do it with all white people, and right. you know <laughs> that's its own kettle of fish. <laughs> well, it's true. I mean, look, you know, now that according to Opera America statistics, as one, which features a transgender female character, is one of the fifteen most produced operas in America. Oh wow! Right, but. And yet we, and it's a chamber opera. And yet we don't have a chamber opera that's produced with that regularity that features non-white characters. Mm-hmm. I mean, will that be the next hurdle to fall? Um, potentially, I think one thing, topically not speaking about it, is that just the clip that we have from the pre-production from them rehearsing it is that one reason that I'm hopeful that this can become. Um, that we start to see more music that fits that is that this is really beautiful music. Um, it's lush. It's not trying to make a statement by being bizarre with its creation. It is literally beautiful music sung by beautiful voices. And I, and to me, that's the most important thing that makes something become, um, part of standard repertoire or makes it a top 15 Mm -hmm. performed or produced piece is that people do ultimately, they want to be drawn into something because it's something they want to be drawn to. And that sounds so simple to say, but so many times people are like, ah, I don't go to opera because it's I don't want to listen to it. Because I don't want to yeah. listen to it. It's not beautiful. Sure. It's confusing. Or but, or I can't relate to it. Or I can't, right. re- exactly, I can't so. relate to it. But then you give them something that's topical, that is happening and is beautiful mm-hmm. in, in aspects and mm-hmm. then really ugly in some, but it creates a discussion. Mm-hmm. And so I think that if you can put a product in front of people that people are drawn into, that's all you can ask for for new production. Plus, I think if you listen to like the music that Janine Tesori was able to write to tell the really heartbreaking story of Fun Home, like this is someone who understands human emotion and like really complex layered situations mm. uh, in in general. So I'm like real. I'm really curious to hear what what specifically she and Taswell Thompson have been able to create. Mm-hmm. Well, good. Let's wrap up the segment and we'll listen to an excerpt provided to us by the Glimmerglass Festival. This features Tasia Quartan singing the role of mother, Kevin Mill at the piano, conducted by Teddy Pohl. Thank you. 
excerpt from Blue, music by Janine Tesori with the libretto by Taswell Thompson. That's running uh, through August 22nd at the Glimmerglass Festival. Problems abounding at opera houses around the world this week, not least right here in the Midwest. That's next on Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM and HD. Northwestern, Evanston, Chicago. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, here's a tip. If you've recently started listening to our show, you already know there's nothing else like it. Week in, week out, you get our panel's hot takes on opera news in the two-minute drill, plus our patented segments like Fantasy Fockball, Monday Evening Quarterback, and Crunching the Numbers. But you might not know about some of the incredible interview guests who have gone inside the huddle with our team, like tenor Matthew Polanzani, composer Gregory Spears, intendantin Kirsten Harms, and countertenor Jakub Josef Orlinski, to name just a few. Check out the Opera Box Score archives on SoundCloud. Just go to soundcloud.com and search for Opera Box Score. And you can tell us about your favorite interviews on our Facebook page and our Twitter feed. This just in the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know that happened in Opera Land over the past week. Stephen Lord has resigned from a number of his conducting positions, including that at Michigan Opera Theater and Opera Theater of St. Louis. Much more on that in one second. The BBC Cardiff Singer of the World contest was won by the Ukrainian baritone Andrei Kimak, 31 years old, prizes 20,000 pounds. A graduate of the Bolshoi's Young Artist Program in Moscow, Kimak debuted last year at the Liceo in Barcelona in Bellini's Ipertani. Italian mezzo-soprano Cecilia Bartoli recently stated that she never signed to do a production of Handel's Giulio Cesare at La Scala in Milan, has since clarified that she withdrew from the production due to the board of the company refusing to renew the contract of Sovereintendente Alexander Pereira, who... Uh, Bart totally had worked closely with it, the Salzburg Festival. New York City Opera will have another reduced schedule for its 2019-20 season. It'll be limited to just two staged productions, plus several conference, excuse me, concerts that will total nine or ten performances. The Wiener Staatsoper will found a new studio for young opera singers when director Bogdan Rosic and musical director Philippe Jourdain take office in autumn 2020. This program will be led by the baritone Michael Krauss, and it's aimed at artists who have completed their education as singers and whose talent and ability promise an international career. Chinese artist Ai Weiwei, known for his politically charged contemporary works, will try his hand at opera by directing Puccini's Turandot. The Rome Opera said I will direct and design the sets and costumes. It's going to open in March 2020. It's the first theatrical work for the 61-year-old artist. You've heard of storefront opera. Get ready for opera in your garage. More on that in a minute. And exit stage right, bass Spiro Malas. And on this day, June 24th, it's the birthday of French composer Gustave Charpentier. That is in 1860. And that is your two-minute drill. You're listening to Opera Box School with George Cedarquest, Tobias Wright, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Oliver the Man Camacho. Good evening, everybody. And thanks for listening to Opera Box Score. We've got a great show going on right now. George Cedarquist here in Studio One, along with our guest, KF Jacques. Yes. Over in Studio Two, Tobias Wright. Need and to shave Matt my back. Cummings. Oh, that's me. 
Yeah. <laughs> All okay, right, Matt, that is that is you. Okay. Matt Cummings drew the short straw, and he's going to try and explain the backstory to the Stephen Lord. I'm sorry, Matt. Yeah, I'll try to with as little ele- editorializing as possible, but it is the two-minute truth. I'll do so the no editorializing promises. from Oliver in a second, but you, you try and get it going first. So about a year ago, this all did really start about a year ago when uh, Matthew Stump w- uh, got in. The, there were the allegations first arose against Matthew Stump while he was working at San Francisco Opera. And I would say the San Francisco Opera kind of fumbled the ball there because they, they didn't really want to take a side until they were pressured to. Um, and eventually the the public outcry about uh, Stump and his, his sexual uh, assault of, of, of an acquaintance of his uh, created enough out, outrage that and uproar that he kind of disappeared from the opera scene and, and kept a low profile. Fast forward a year, he shows up as part of the cast for Michigan Opera Theater's Don Giovanni, uh, among other appearances with them. Uh, and people are pretty unhappy about that again. Uh, and, but one person who is not unhappy about Matthew Stump is uh, Stephen Lord, the conductor at Michigan Opera Theater, who not only defends him, but uh, by some reports uh, paid for some of his legal fees uh, the, to, to defend himself against uh, the allegations that were taken to court against him. Uh Lord defended him even after uh, Matthew Stump was released from these contracts, uh, which is about where the story had gotten to last week when we were talking about the Twin Cities Arts uh, Arts Review piece from 2018, uh, and all which would did a really deep dive into the San Francisco Opera allegations against Matthew Stump. The very next day, <laughs> um, a floodgate of accusations against against Lord starts breaking out and this was this the day after our last episode correct as well uh yeah, yeah last last tuesday these allegations are coming to light as well that he behaved inappropriately toward people who were working with him studying under him uh for decades and, and i believe there's something like two dozen allegations that have since been levied and that's official allegations beyond all the backroom whisperings and mm-hmm. watch out for yourself advice that gets passed around on social media uh, so, you know, we're, the more things change, the more they stay in the same, George. Yeah, that's true. Uh, he, and these are allegations where they collected copies of emails, yeah. texts, they've, they've got corroborating the statements, receipts. Yeah, it's... The article on the Twin Cities Arts Reader website is also on our website, operaboxscore.com. Now, on the show last week, Oliver came to... A, what he would call a waffling defense of, of Stephen Lord. And uh, Oliver's not on the show tonight, and he wanted us to share this. He says, Oliver is not on the show today out of shame for his waffling defense of Stephen Lord on our last episode. He is the worst. Here's what he has to say. Dear listeners, last week I was the perfect example of how the patriarchy, even the gay male patriarchy that exists in the opera community, thrives. I don't know Stephen Lord. I only know singers who have worked with him and who have said nice things about his mentorship and skill as a conductor. So when I saw that Lord was getting dragged down by the sexual harassment accusation against Matthew Stump, I very wrongly allowed the only information I had about Maestro Lord to cloud my judgment or even curiosity to dig a little deeper into Lord's culpability. That's my mistake. I promise to do better. Please forgive me if my negligence or ignorance has disappointed any of you. Well, of course, Oliver's not on the show tonight because it's his birthday, but we did want to pass along that written apology from him. You know, I hate to say this. That's how so many people feel when these allegations happen. Yeah. Is they want to defend based on what the art was that was created or even what their experience has been with that person. And honestly, like that's a trap Mm. because, uh, the, these bad actors are capable of acting in more than one way. Right. Absolutely. Just because you haven't been in the context with them where this thing happened, doesn't really, doesn't make anyone, any other person's experiences less valid. Mm. Corey, what is your, your take on this story or on the general flow of, sexual harassment allegations specifically in our world of opera yes um it uh specifically in the world of opera i think opera is just sort of reflecting what's going on around the world especially in the entertainment business where Mm -hmm. um you know it's been a male-dominated industry and so a lot of these things were sliding by you know and now the me too me too movement has sort of created this uh 
this awareness, you know, that uh, that people should be Pe- respectful. You know, people abuse the power. Oh, absolutely. And especially, I think I, I hate to say especially because that feels like it diminishes other uh, worlds in which it happens. Mm-hmm. But in the arts, people are so hungry. Mm-hmm in a saturated market they're so hungry for an opportunity that the odds of someone in a position of power being reported yeah you know for making a pass or for saying if you sleep with me you know this is how you get into this program this is how you know the odds of people reporting that it's it's now it's been we're seeing it it's taken decades yeah it has taken decades and it's still not stopping absolutely Um, Absolutely. and you know what's interesting about this one is pretty quickly lord has been openly defiant about it yeah and in denying them quite strongly and saying i could fight all of this and i still might yesterday i had two of the world's most famous opera singers one from moscow even call that which gives me great hope that someone from moscow is calling to back right. you up <laughs> nice uh and three former employers these are friends and people with whom yes of course these are friends and people with whom you've enjoyed solid relationships but also with whom you've manipulated their vision and their understanding about who you are, just like you manipulated the young people who were trying to come to you for guidance and help with their career path. Exactly. And for all the fear about a Me, a me Too backlash, which has definitely occurred, but for all the, you know, the, the, all this fear that, oh, these people's careers are going to be ruined, innocent people are going to be just totally dragged into the streets, I don't really think you can convincingly argue for which side has suffered more Mm. the people bringing these accusations or the people accused there are plenty of people who have uh survived what should be career-ending accusations against them including uh someone who just had a new accusation surface against him last week well Mm. the people that bring these accusations they are suffering 19th or his 20th yeah who knows they're suffering multiple times right they are suffering at the initial point of contact they are suffering from the PTSD of that contact, right. and then they are suffering again when they were doing the moral thing and the correct thing and bringing these things to light. It is such a fallacy. Nobody, let nobody tell you that people who bring these accusations are trying to advance their own careers. That is such BS. Yeah. Nobody, nobody in their right mind would come out and make accusations like this just to push themselves further along. It does not happen. I refuse to believe that. I absolutely agree with you, George. And I mean, the other thing, too, is that after coming forward, then you you know, and we've seen repeatedly, no one who's been accused of sexual assault or sexual harassment in any of these situations has been like, yeah, I did that. Yeah, thank you. Right. Every, right. Sing- every single one of them. <laughs> every single one of them has denied it. Wow. Unequivocally denied it. And so then the people who are making the accusation or reporting what has happened have to relive it all over again. Mm. And that's living in, in it's living in this weird reality that I, I just, you know, your heart goes out and you. And even after these stories are breaking, people are not willing to go on the record with their names. They, right. they are, they're right. still needing to stay anonymous because they're worried about their careers and right. the fallout of, exactly. of right. someone so that's thinking. That's not a career move. <laughs> Absolutely. Of someone thinking that they were the one who, who talked. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Um, can, we go, can we move on to another sad thing? Sure. The New York City Opera announcement really makes me sad. The incredible shrinking New York the City Opera. The incredibly <laughs> shrinking. Because, but because, so it sucks because I think so many people want that company to succeed and believe that they have an important part of opera in the United States of America because they did for so long. But it also sucks because it, it, it looks like, from the outside looking in, there were some serious miscalculations and a ton of poor judgment on what they would actually be capable um, of doing. Which has been like kind of the New York City opera story for the last years. I know, but years, that's the point. Know. That's why it sucks is because <laughs> like you, you, they finally were back into a spot where they could move forward. Yeah. And they totally blew this opportunity it was like i i know it's so sad that we were like oh my god we lost an institution and then the opportunity to come back be healthy and they were doing well like they did uh fanchula del west and it was fantastic mm. phenomenal sold out all the shows and th- and then you blow it again within two years yeah yeah i it, don't know it, it just c- makes me sad i don't know what they were it goes back to what we were talking about last week, I think, George, with uh, Alamo City Opera closing its doors. And yes. just the fact that, you know, finding someone who has the the grit and determination to make something work and the know-how for how to, you know, guide these huge ships through choppy waters, it 
it, it, it's a really daunting task. It's a daunting task for one person, but I don't think it's one person's job. <clears throat> and that's where I differed, especially with the Alamo story, is that I don't think it should be a cult of personality. No, not that, that. that's not what I meant so much as like finding qualified leaders who who end up in the places where they have the opportunity to lead is like ah yes asking for lightning to strike twice sure. in the same place sometimes yeah, yeah absolutely gentlemen if you had the chance to um apply for the wiener Stadt's oper studio would you i just need to know how much they're going to charge for their stupid application <laughs> fee yeah they better not ask for youtube videos and then not listen to any yeah <laughs> i know where this is going like <laughs> It was like it read like a parody of. It was like they were making fun of the United States young young artist programs. Wait a minute, with, maybe they were. It's. I think it's a joke. I went on their website <laughs> and could, I wanted to apply, I and I couldn't find out how. It was Dude, just in German. It, it's a joke. Oh my God, Toby, it's a joke. Is it? Are they trolling us? I. I oh, they're so stupid. They thought we were being serious. <laughs> I refuse to believe that the Wiener Staatsoper has only just figured out. That it's a young opera program could make them like millions of dollars. That's why I think it's like I, I seriously did try to apply. Maybe I'm just like dumb, but I. Well, I, you are dumb, but you're not that dumb. Thank That's you, George. <laughs> <laughs> Give them a little time to get that website off the ground. It's not until 2020. <laughs> yeah, you're right. <laughs> uh, Chinese artist Ai Weiwei directing and designing this production of Puccini's Turn Dot. I, I can't believe it's taken this long yeah. for him. I really just hope he gives us a reason why we still do Torrendote because it's getting <laughs> harder and harder to explain why this piece is relevant and not insulting. And having ha having someone really take a hard look at what's in that opera and, and put it on stage to... To, I have a feeling he has a statement to make <laughs> well, based on his uh, based <laughs> on his history. This dude he had to live in asylum for three years. Oh, yeah. Hell yeah, he's oh, got yeah. things to say. Yeah. I'm so stoked. He's going to make the most of it. Can that be our first opera trip together? Well, okay. March our 2020 first, Rome. Our first uh, international opera trip together. I'm going. All right. Let's do All it. Right. I'm in. It's a date. Did any of you listen? We'll wrap it up. With, did any of you listen to the, the clip of the... Um, Opera company in Madison, Wisconsin. Oh, the, the garage, garage opera. Garage opera. Oh wow! I did. I did. I did. You know, <laughs> they really like their beer up in Madison, don't they? And cheese. It's. it's I don't everywhere. know. Matt's like the former Wisconsinite. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't really live there, but I spent many a day traipsing around the the countryside, educating, going the, to every Culver's, educating in the youths. <laughs> uh, what did you think about the opera in the garage, George? Not much. I, I mean, I I, nah. I didn't see the point. I guess you didn't see. Of all people, you didn't see the point because I don't see the because the the work that I find fascinating is when there is a clear connection between the site and the material. Yeah, this clip showed them doing Hansel and Gretel, Humperdinck. I don't see the connection between their interpretation of that opera and a garage. So I don't think that all of the work that this company does is, is in a garage. I think that's... No, it's this definitely is, not. Yeah, this is a special... To me, the point of this was that they didn't have a venue or a budget. <laughs> so they did it where they could. And regardless, it's like, hey, you prove to me what the point is between connecting that space with that text and I will be there, right? Now, the opera you really should do... In a garage? Is Frank Zappra's opera, Joe's Garage. You know that piece by Frank Zappra? It's uh, so good. Do you know that? No, not even I know. Are that you one. trolling me? No, I'm not trolling you, bro. I mean, I love Frank Zappa. This is a, a show I've wanted to direct forever. Anyway. All you got to do is find somebody with a garage. Yeah, it's too bad you just uh, made fun of that garage opera company <laughs> that could have made that happen for you. I have my own garage. Good call, bad call on Opera Box Score. Ah, man, we're in such a great run of shows over the last month or so. I'm just, I'm really feeling it. It's Good Call, Bad Call. It's our time when we talk about something really great in opera over the past week or something totally lousy. I guess I already talked about garage opera and how I thought it was lousy. So my turn's done. We're going to, we'll go around the circle. We'll finish with K.F. Jacques. He might have something fabulous or something despicable to say about opera. Matt Cummings, anything on your mind? Yeah, last week I got a chance to go to the CSO Aida with Anita Rashvelishvili singing Amneris under uh, Riccardo Muti. Y'all, everything you've heard about this singer is like not even close to being 
as good as she is. Like, this is someone to watch. That's my, that's what I got to say. Don't tell Weston that. Whatever you do, he'll be very disappointed that he couldn't go. I will. I'll, I'll be sure to text it to him many times. Many Excellent. times. Uh, happy bur- birthday to Oliver Camacho, our creative consultant and lover. Kari, anything you want to hype that is coming up in your world? Of course I want to hype something. I'm filming a video uh, on West Diversity on July 13th. So go to kfjock.com, K-F-J-A-C-Q-U-E-S.com, and please come and be in my video. Everyone is invited. Everyone is invited. We'll be there. I'll be, we'll be there. <laughs> That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk radio show about opera. The general managers at WNUR are Henry Moskal and Somil Sangvi. Our announcer is Norm Waddell at voxershorts.com, V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra, with opera statistics and on-this-day content from operabase.com. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts on Twitter. We're at Opera Box Score. And please leave a review when you subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. For our guest, KF Jacques, along with co-hosts Tobias Wright and Matt Cummings, I'm George Cedarquist asking you to continue the conversation about opera, opera-tronic style. We're back on Monday, July 1st, 9 p.m. Central with countertenor Christopher Lowry goes inside the huddle with Oliver, plus more opera, more hot takes, more beats. Join us. This is WNUR 89.3 FM and HD, Northwestern Evanston, Chicago, Chicago Sound Experiment.